thank you for being patient with that long reading. Good morning. Um, as I try to normally do, I, w- I want to claim on our behalf together. Um, this sermon is not me talking to you. It's us learning from God together. I want to claim his uh, promise in Acts 2 that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. And we shall be his witnesses uh, as a result of that. Even now as we meet, we're being his witnesses. uh, In a unique way. So, we are two months uh, into our sermon series, Kingdom Manifesto, the Sermon on the Mount. This week marks the finish of a very well-known part of the sermon with the sequence of uh, blessed, blessed are. Really culminating in last week's sermon with Buzzy. There are eight, usually those, and this one has a blessed, but um, just due to symmetry, which you'll find if you study um, the word in the Old Testament, the, first, uh, the last blessed was last week, and this one is kind of a playing out of that. Uh, So this is why Buzzy drew uh, from this week's verses, uh, rightly so. Uh, This marks the transition to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, which we will be getting to in these sections. And it will take us the next uh, five months to do that, up until August. Um, But we we didn't want to only spend uh, a little bit of time on this. We did want to go deeper down with these words of Jesus we didn't want to miss any nuggets that might be here to help uh, restore our souls. Uh, it is from this passage that uh, if you look at the coming chapters, uh, the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7, we're going to be addressing uh, the sermons for each of these chunks. Uh, some that are even, some of these passages even as well known as these first 12 verses, like the salt and light passage. Uh, the turn the other cheek passage. Uh, so these will be some of these will be very familiar to you as we go through them in the coming months. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is famous for very good reason. Uh, to reiterate to you all, we want you to read, reflect, consume, meditate on these passages each week as we preach through them. Um, God speaks to us not only from this time but also throughout the week, most especially through his word. That is how we get fed the sustenance of our souls. It is also how we remain accountable to each other. If we are reading the same word together, more than likely we will see similar things, debate similar things, discuss similar things, and therefore grow closer to God as we grow closer to each other. The same word that spoke everything into existence Echoes in these very pages. And that don't think that voice has lost any of its potency. It's just as powerful today as it was the moment God said, let there be light. Also, we are going through the Sermon of the Mount because it is a great summary of the teachings of Jesus, of what it means to be a Christian. Not that all the others are other passages are lesser or weaker, far from it, merely that this section of Matthew allows us uh, in a short period of time to cover essentially the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, 
Uh, This is why the series, we've titled the series Kingdom Manifesto. It summarizes what we do and should value. And this is important these days as many of us, uh, many who would call themselves Christians seem to have strayed from this manifesto. I'm not surprised. It is an impossible task to live this kind of life. But that's exactly why the gospel is needed and that it is real. The appearance of Jesus of Nazareth on this earth flipped everything on its head and made the impossible possible. His very words, Jesus' very words in Matthew 19 confirm this. When his disciples asked him, after seeing somebody walk away who they thought could be easily saved, they turned to Jesus and said, then who can be saved if this guy can't be saved? And it says in Matthew 19, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with, thing, with God all things are possible. It may seem impossible to follow this beautifully communicated list of values and principles, these chunks of, of, of you know, great, great encouraging things. It may seem impossible. I mean, this is a, even in three chapters, this is a long list of things to have to build your life around. But with Jesus, all things are possible. So we are preaching through this section of the Gospel of Matthew. And, has been, and as has been stated previously in these sermons, this list that we just finished here in the first 11, 10 verses is really a summary of a person who is God's. More specifically, one who is God's here and now. Why? Because in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no longer need or there will be no longer anyone who is poor in spirit. Think about that. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will no longer be anyone poor in spirit. There will no longer be any mourning. There will no longer be anyone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness in the new heaven and the new earth. There will be no longer any need to make peace in the new heaven and the new earth. All of that will be finished and will be viscerally present for eternity. Last week, Buzzy introduced the bad news, so to speak. He preached on the last of the eight stanzas of the blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I can only imagine the feelings of the followers of Christ as he was going through this list And he gets to this point in verses 10, 11, and 12. I mean, who of us wouldn't feel a sense of consolation in the first seven blesseds? Thank you, Jesus, that those of us who are poor in spirit will get the kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. I will be comforted after my mourning and that I get to see God if I'm pure in heart. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And that, thank you, Jesus, as a peacemaker, I will get to be a son of God. Wait, what? Persecution? Revilement? Oh, speaking evil against me? Uh, can we go back to the poor in spirit part? Uh, the mourning? I, I want to go back there. I don't want to deal with this persecution. What we sometimes fail to see is that what, is, what this list really is, is about Jesus. And about knowing Jesus and where that leads. Because Jesus walked this before us. 
So I'll get into that later. I'm usually one who, if asked, do you want the good news or the bad news first, I will always pick the bad news. Because I want to get that out of the way and end on a happy note. And this here is not the case. Jesus ends on the bad news because this would not have worked otherwise. Talking about persecution at first. These final verses only make sense after the list of the first eight are stated because that was what happened to Jesus. Jesus fulfills every one of these blessings. What I want to do this morning is talk about the hate in these verses. The hate. I want to talk about hate. I want to talk about the general idea and reality of hate. Because that's what we're talking about here. Then I want to talk about the specific instance of hate Jesus is talking about in this set of verses. And then I want to talk about hate and the relationship with the truth. So general hate, specific hate, and then truth and hate. If you want to remember it that way. How many of us honestly wish to be hated? How many of you and us make it a goal to be hated by people they meet throughout the day? And do you get up in the morning and I can't wait to be hated by someone? I'm sure if we did a survey, I doubt there would be a high number of positive respondents to that question. Even people who seem to go out of their way to tick people off probably have a part of them that really doesn't like it. I mean, we have phrases like, haters are going to hate, which I found out was actually from the 90s hip-hop culture. Haters going to hate. It's actually in some rap songs there. That's for you young folk. <laughs> a phrase like, mean people suck. I mean, that's mean people are haters, right? As well as we have this... Uh, in our current culture, this criminal and it's a criminal and a political idea, and sometimes the edges of it are made of, of hate crimes. They kind of show us the way hate is viewed in our culture. There are studies that show. Uh, I read that there are studies that were analyzing the brain as they were uh, showing people various pictures. A mix of pictures, some of uh, pictures of people they hate. And they wanted to see what parts of the brain fired up. And they showed that the parts of the brain fire up when you hate are are about the same areas as passion and romantic love. So the same areas that fire for, you see an image of hate, somebody you hate, part of your brain fires is the same area where all these aspects of passion and the love and the romantic love you might feel for your uh, spouse or girlfriend happen, boyfriend. So it's not hard to move from the idea of love and hate. I mean, maybe that's why a lot of poetry is written about it. Um, Hate is also in a lot of other things, like uh, simple bias, wrong bias. It's good to be biased against certain things, But wrong bias, prejudices, racism, abuse, murder, and war all carry hate in the mix. Show me who is holy in their actions about hate, even in this room, even in my own heart. 
I think if we were all to lay out our own individual histories, we could even see it visually, see what our thoughts were to each other today, unedited and completely exposed, we'd be hard-pressed to find moments where feelings of hate were completely absent from our lives, from any part of our lives. Whether just or unjust, hate is present in our humanity. I mean, even just the words and phrases Jesus uses here reveals hate's existence. He uses the word revile. He uses false and evil utterances and persecution. Say we didn't have God's word telling us these things and we merely had our own senses and minds to see the world. I don't think it would be hard to see hate and, and wonder about it. Because there's something about hate that indicates that it is pointing to something more. Even our response to it. We don't like it. Or we like it too much. And that can make us feel uncomfortable. Or if you're numb to it, it makes others uncomfortable. If hate, true hate, were normal, why be uncomfortable with it or even have a sense that it is wrong? I mean, if hate were truly natural, why are we uncomfortable with its existence? Hate's existence seems to point to the fact that it shouldn't exist. I think hate and our reaction to it point to a better world. It reminds me of that thing that C.S. Lewis said about if we find in ourselves a longing for something that we cannot find in this world, then it must mean that we're made for another world. Well, hate's the same thing. We feel uncomfortable with it because it must mean it shouldn't exist. Now, bring the word back into the equation and we see the Bible as a great tome showing that hate exists. Whether hatred of other people or God, it shows us this incensed feeling is as old as humanity. These two ideas that hate shows us there is a better world and that it is as old as humanity also show us how helpless we are in eradicating it from our world, let alone our own lives. If humanity is as old as some say you would think we would have been able to improve humanity to hate less. But rather, it seems we have merely gotten better at how we can exercise our hate of fellow human beings, even on mass scales. Certainly seems it would take something or someone not of this world, something perhaps supernatural, to take care of this problem. Which brings me to my next point of the specific hate Jesus talks about here. In verse 10, Jesus mentions persecution, which he repeats again in verse 11. In verse 10, he states, someone being persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, someone hating you and relentlessly going after you, because that's what persecution means, a relentless going after. Uh, Because you're doing the right thing or doing good or something righteous. So here we have Jesus narrowing the hate a little. He is excluding hating people who are unrighteous. Though from other words from his mouth, he does address that in other places in the scripture. And he says that if you are righteous and you are persecuted, then you are blessed. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 11, he shifts the focus 
and narrows the people being hated or persecuted even more. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice he shifts from talking about a person out there to talking directly to his followers. Blessed are you. Blessed are the mourners. Blessed are you. Jesus is starting to make the revilement and persecution personal. And he takes it even further when at the end of this verse he says to his disciples that you are blessed when you are persecuted on my account. So he goes, the mourner, you, my account. Notice that. Meaning because of him. So he takes it out of righteousness persecuted. He goes, blessed are you when you're persecuted. And he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted on my account. This was not missed on his followers. About 15 years or so from the time of Christ, 15 years from the moment Jesus said these words, his half-brother James, the then leader of the Jerusalem church, wrote in the first chapter of his letter these words. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The word count here in James is an accounting term. James is saying that when you face or get hatred, put it in the profit or gain column. When you do your books on persecution. We all have books, right? (laughs) So Jesus narrows the population of those being hated even more. From those being persecuted because of being good or the righteous. To those who are persecuted for being followers of him. And it seems his immediate followers, the twelve after Judas departed, took this to heart. If the traditional stories of the ends of their lives are true, you ever do a search on what happened to the, the 12 uh, disciples, that's including Matthias, who was chosen after his departure. It's, um, you see that the, most of them lost their lives unnaturally by being martyred. For example, Peter and Andrew were crucified. Peter upside down. That's why Peter's cross is upside down. Matthew and Philip were probably stabbed to death. These were, they were all going about in various parts of the world um, making disciples, and this, this is what happened to them. That's just to mention a few. If, if you do this search, you'll find what happens to uh, each one of these. The only one that survived was uh, John of the Twelve, and, but he uh, was even boiled in oil, which I cannot imagine. And the, viral, and the revilement, persecution, and utterances did not stop with the apostles, but continued through the early centuries after the time of Christ. So it didn't just stop with the apostles. It, even the followers of the apostles. One of the most powerful accounts to me was the story of Polycarp in Smyrna a disciple of the Apostle John. He lived in the second century. In the account, Polycarp was pursued, found, and arrested. However, 
his, the way he conducted himself, his demeanor and graciousness was so impressive that even while being arrested, people saw that he was a different. He even, the account even says that he came to arrest him. He welcomed them gladly, set a table for them to sit down, while, and he asked, can I have one hour of prayer unmolested? They let him have one hour of prayer unmolested while they ate food. <laughs> anyway, I just can't imagine that. So they were like, uh, this is not a guy that seems like we should arrest him. Anyway, um, even while he was arrested, his captors would beg him to renounce God and acknowledge Caesar's divinity. What harm would it do? That's many of the questions. His response to this was powerful. He said this, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who hath saved me? Eighty-six years old. That was another reason why they were like, wait, an 86-year-old? This guy's a danger to the kingdom, or to the Roman Empire? Anyway, so they tied him up to a stake. They didn't nail him. He asked not to be nailed because he said he'd stay there. But they tied him up, and they burned him alive. And the account of his being burned to death is kind of interesting. I'll let you look that up. But his final words were actually a blessing to God to have been placed among the martyrs. So martyrdom is not, but, however, martyrdom is not unique to the first centuries of Christianity. It is sadly alive and well today. In fact, it's even worse. In reports on this issue from around 2017-18, the persecution of Christians was the highest it has ever been in history. Even stating Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world. So why don't we hear about that here more publicly? That's a pretty complex answer, I'm sure, brothers and sisters. The most well-known recent persecution and martyrdom of Christian in recent years was the beheading of 21 Christian men on the beach of Sirta, Libya in 2015. Twenty were Coptic Christians. One was Ghanaian, who, whose body was recently laid to rest in Egypt alongside the brothers who were killed with him that day. It would seem the accounts of persecution of Christians are overflowing. And Jesus says to every one of those, charge it to my account. I mean, he says it right here. Blessed are you when others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Let me narrow in a little bit here. Think about why, why was Jesus executed? Because this is present here, even with the, the accounts that I've just given. Why was he executed? Because he was executed. If you turn to John 31 and 30, to John 10, 31 to 34, it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. This is Jesus. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? 
The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. He was crucified because he was right. (laughs) Mark 15, Luke 23. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews or his accusers? And Jesus says, you have said so. Notice he doesn't really say it the Western way. Yes. (laughs) An American would have said, yes. (laughs) He says, you have said so. In John 18, the Gospel of John, it says, Pilate entered his headquarters and again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or do others say that about me? As again, he doesn't say, Yes. Are you saying this? Or did others tell you to say this? It's very, very wonderfully canny. Even while he's facing death, he's saying, Why were the disciples killed? Because they could not deny what they had seen. Their rabbi had died. Their rabbi had been buried. And their rabbi was alive again. And had interacted with them. That is something they could not deny. And they lived for that. And they died for that. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus' words are no less true today than when he first said these words to his followers in the first century. I'm not trying to gin your emotions up here, brothers and sisters. I'm not trying to frighten you. Uh, There is actually no need to be afraid which I will be getting to shortly. I'm merely trying to communicate in a small way the reality of living in this world as a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He said this would happen, and it did, and it still does. The reason we have probably an uncomfortable aspect of with these things here in our church, in the West, and in America, is because it's not as present for us. Thankfully so. We are truly fortunate to not face this level of severe persecution. But don't mistake our fortune for distance. Don't let the degrees of severity, the fact that persecution here is light, for some other source of persecution. I mean, just because it seems light here doesn't mean severity is all that far off. This kind of thing is never far off because it is never far from our hearts as human beings. We hate. Jeremiah says in chapter 17 of his book, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I agree. I can't, I sometimes can't understand some of the things I hear. Just the words in our own culture, words towards brothers and sisters in Christ, let alone the stuff we hear about 21 guys being beheaded on the beach in Libya, North Africa. The only one who can understand is God, and he has warned us here. So how are we to think about this kind of thing? How do we make sense of this level of hatred for what is right and true to help 
us live our lives today, even if someday we face this. And this brings me to my last point, truth and hate. Our proximity to the truth, capital T truth, affects the degree with which we think about and face adversity. Our proximity to the truth, capital T truth, affects the degree with which we think about and face adversity, even revilement, persecution, lies, and evil acts. The closer you are to the truth, the further you need to worry about actual harm. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The proximity that we are to Jesus affects how we face hardship. Which brings me to Daniel 3, the reading this morning. This is a great Old Testament example of this exact truth. The way this thing reads is like the whole nation of Babylon versus three Jewish guys named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, makes a gold statue that he commands all the people he rules to bow and worship it at the sound of the band. Cue the band, and then you all worship. Did you all notice where the first persecution happens in this story? It begins with Chaldeans, certain Chaldeans, who came forward and started uttering evil. If we use the words of Matthew 5. Here's the difference at this point, though. What they accused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of was actually true. These guys aren't worshiping your uh, golden statue, Nebuchadnezzar. That was actually true. And when Nebuchadnezzar asks Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if this was true, even brings them up, gets the band ready, gets the sound, gets the system up, brings them up and says, gives them a chance to make amends. He says, okay, I've heard that you don't want to worship, so I've got my band here. As soon as they worship, you guys, and everyone there see these guys do it. Here's your chance. Do it right, guys. Go. And this is what it says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So at this point, the persecution of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego deepens. It says Nebuchadnezzar gets so mad that the account says his face changes. It's almost like he was possessed. And he orders the burning furnace heated seven times higher than normal. He's apoplectic. He's even so mad that he gets his best fighting men (laughs) to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. Then the scene cuts to Nebuchadnezzar asking his people, didn't we only put three guys in there? (laughs) It's kind of like they're waiting, you know, maybe having drinks and like waiting to see what happens. And wait, Guys, didn't we only put three people in there? And they said, yes, king. And Nebuchadnezzar, how come there are four? And that fourth guy looks like a god, a son of God. When the the furnace finally cools enough to be approached, Nebuchadnezzar tells Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to come out. And they see that the only thing that burned off from them were their bindings. Not a hair of their head or body was singed. 
They didn't even smell of smoke. Now, this is an area of the country that we love to smoke things. We love fires. And there hasn't been a time that I haven't walked away from being in a burning fire that I have not smelled like smoke. Well, these guys were in it. (laughs) And they didn't even smell like smoke. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar, in his own way, takes a step closer to Jehovah. Though he does say, if you don't believe in Jehovah, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. So, Neb, we've got to talk to you about that one. It's a great story, but the real moment here in this passage, in Jesus' word in Matthew 11 and 12, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response to Nebuchadnezzar. But if not, do you hear that? God can save us. We know that. That's what's true. He's God. He's not your God, and that's not the God pointing to the gold statue. He can save us from this burning furnace. But, honestly... But if he doesn't, he's still God. What was true? How proximate were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the truth? Oh, they were right in the heart of it. They knew God. And they knew what they needed to do. They had enough faith in God to say that it really didn't matter if God saved them from the furnace or not. Either, the, either way, they weren't going to obey Nebuchadnezzar. They were going to obey God. This response, this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego response, reminds me of Paul's words in Philippians. As it is, as it is my eager expectation, this is in Philippians, as it is my eager expectation and hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I, li- if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. If I live, I will live for Christ, Paul says. If I die, I will go be with Christ. Doesn't that sound similar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's attitude? Jesus even kind of mentions Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 12 when he says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our proximity to truth affects the way we think about and face adversity. And if Jesus is the truth, the closer he is to us or we are to him affects the way we think about and face adversity. As I was listening to Buzzy's sermon last week and thinking about this issue, I wrote these words down, these phrases. It's not the severity of the pain of persecution, but how true is truth. Truth can only handle so much. How much? Only as far as truth is true. Truth can only handle everything. How long does truth Stay true. Where does truth have an end? Because at that point, the pain of persecution prevails and becomes unbearable. So how much pain and persecution can truth handle? Show me its limits. Let me reread. I want to reread that and change one of the words. It's not the severity of the pain of persecution, but how true is Jesus? Jesus can only handle so much. How much? Only as far as Jesus is true. Jesus can only handle everything. 
How long does Jesus stay true? Where does Jesus have an end? Because at that point, the pain of persecution prevails and becomes unbearable. So how much pain and persecution can Jesus handle? Show me his limits. This is an important point because we live in a culture that is so soaked in believing in our own truth, usually stated in the sentence, that's my truth. I recently heard that phrase even in the Marvel WandaVision series. This phrase is used almost as if it's on the same level of ultimate truth, meaning it is unalterable and completely accurate. The problem with that conclusion is that we are all finite and flawed human beings. We are incapable of getting things completely right. And since that is true, we need our truths to always be in relation to to the truth in order to measure our experiences to an infinite and perfect thing. My truth must bow the knees to the truth. If it doesn't, then I'm doing nothing more or less than what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Please hear me. I'm not trying to delegitimize a person's experience. I'm saying that a person's experience is not the gospel. Only the gospel is the gospel and nothing else. And the gospel needs to have the final word in our lives. If not, then more than our bindings will burn when we are thrown in the fiery furnace. Let me say it again, because this is too important. Our proximity to the truth affects the way we think about and face adversity. And if Jesus is the truth, the closer we are, he is to us and we are to him, affects the way we think about and face adversity. Let me encourage you with this question. To, this question. How close to Jesus? How close is Jesus to us? Matthew 28 says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Romans 8 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Colossians says this, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus, by his spirit, is in us. We can't get any closer, or he can't get any closer to us than he already is. If you are in Christ, then dwell on that truth. Rely on him, his spirit, to cultivate the characteristics spoken about in this chapter and following chapters. His spirit is with us, makes us capable of tackling these things in Matthew 5 through 7. We have five more months of sermons to preach on the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not a follower of Christ, then let me invite you to consider him, his life, his words, and his resurrection. There is no other way to deal with the hate of this world, whether it is in your heart or around you. I wanted to end this sermon with a poem by Malcolm Geith. It is titled Beatitudes and was written in response to these first 12 verses in chapter 5 of Matthew. But before I do, let me reread the first 12 verses. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Beatitudes. I bless you who have spelt your blessings out and set this lovely lantern on a hill, lightening darkness and dispelling doubt by lifting for a little while the veil. For longing is the veil of satisfaction and grief the veil of future happiness. I glimpse beneath the veil of persecution the coming kingdom's overflowing bliss. Oh, make me pure of heart and help me see amongst the shadows and amidst the morning the promised comforter alive and free, the kingdom coming and the sun returning, that even in this pre-dawn dark I might at once reveal and revel in your light. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for being exactly this list of blessings. You have walked this before us. You were poor in spirit. You were mourning the impact of sin. You lived the life of the peacemaker. You did all these things. And you were persecuted for it. And we're grateful that you are close in our hearts with those experiences so that were we to face them and when we face them, you can say, I know. So they did it to me. Work in our hearts and our minds. Restore our souls with that encouragement and these words. Prepare us for the coming passages in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as we sit at your feet and learn from you. And I can pray this only because of what you did 2,000 years ago. In your name, amen.